Welcome. Today on the Chase Wildly podcast, we have a remarkable man sitting with us, uh, a man I'm lucky enough to call my father. He's a successful business owner for over 45 years of a company he started in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was in the Army Reserves. He's one of the most productive people I know, uh, and probably above all, He's one of the most giving humans I know. He's one of the most active philanthropists in our community, having started a charter school, having led the funding for an emergency room uh, here in the community to allow services for all people with or without insurance. And uh, it's really a pleasure to sit down with my own dad and begin this discussion of what it means to be a man, a good man, a man who lives with meaning, and what it takes to go down that path in life. So it's a pleasure to search for answers with this heavy hitter, my pops. Let's go. But I think everybody has to find their own passion and their own dream. And so I wouldn't say it has to be this or that. It's up to you to find it and explore it and look around. Give yourself an opportunity. And then once you have a taste of it, you will have some knowledge of what it is you want to be. You want to be a writer. You want to be a singer. You want to be something. Just go for it. And if you find that you have found your path, go. How's it going? Great. Good. It's nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. I'm excited about this opportunity. Good. Good. Well, it's awesome to have you on. Um, I like to start this conversation by just having you describe the phases of your life. I mean, I could ask you what you do, but, um, how have you moved through your life and what have been the major phases in your life? Um, I would describe the phases as... Growing up in Modesto or young boyhood as phase one, evolving into um, college life and army as phase two, Um, my professional life and business career as phase three, and then my current phase, which is more self-actualization and doing what creatively I've never been able to do before. Mm-hmm. So that pretty much in summary describes it in a high level. Yeah. And I think it's a unique opportunity to have to talk with my own father about this subject um, because what I want to try to understand is not not if there's a right way or a wrong way to become a man or a good man or a good human, but to hear different stories 
to see different perspectives on what it may mean over time as this concept of manhood evolves. So you, what year were you born? 1937. So what was going on in the world then? Or what are your first memories? And It was uh, an era of depression in the United States and of little material or financial wherewithal in our family. Um, and it was also the beginning of World War II. So there was uh, a lot of what I would describe as tension and uh, concern in our family, not only financially, but in terms of what was happening in the broader world, um, in Europe in particular, and also in the Pacific uh, war zone. And so that was filled with tension at, at the same time um, within the family. I didn't have a father that was present, so it was primarily female-dominated. Uh, so in spite of that environment, I felt secure and loved. And um, I, I guess the awkwardness that I felt at that time interacting with my peers in school, elementary school and high school, was the fact that divorce was such a unique experience uh, in Modesto at that time that um, I felt different and uh, somewhat apart and uh, insecure as a result of that. Um, so it was a combination of those factors that I would describe as how I felt um, during those years uh, until I was probably 16 or 17 and about to leave Modesto. Yeah, so divorce was not commonplace. Yes, quite the contrary. Where it, it seems to be today. Absolutely. The culture and the environment, at least in Modesto, which was kind of middle America in terms of the culture, uh, it was typically a, 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 a nuclear family with a father and a mother in residence. And uh, that was not the case in my situation. Right. So tell me a little bit more about your situation. Um, who was there and who wasn't there? Um, my father was not there. Uh, he left when I was t too young to even remember the exact date or time or year. But who was there is my grandmother, uh, my mother's mother, my aunt, my mother's sister, and my mother were the three uh, dominant players in my life. And then my uncle, who was my mother's brother, uh, was also present in the household. So I was raised in my grandmother's house and also, you know, within a block, uh, the house where my mom and I lived as well. But I spent 80% of my time with the family in my grandmother's house. Yeah. Now there's this concept that in, in psychology, I guess, that we tend to model, even unconsciously, the gender roles that we see play out in our households. With the absence of a father, do you have a sense of, if you were modeling someone in particular in your household or w who you may have been modeling to figure out what it meant to be male or a man? Um, 
since there wasn't a strong male presence in the household, there was a tremendous uh, emphasis on athletics, football, baseball, and so... From the women. From the women and the male in the house. And the male, being your yeah. grandfather and your uncle? My uncle, your not, uncle. not grandfather. Okay. And um, so there was baseball and football on the radio constantly. Of course, that was before TV because TV didn't come in until the early 50s. Yeah. So it was, you know, college football, high school football, baseball at the Pacific Coast League level and then at the major league level. So my role models were very, were virtual. I mean, I would listen to the radio. I would read the papers. Those were the role models. I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be an athlete. That was that was what my image of a male was, mm -hmm. as opposed to a businessman or a fisherman or anything else. Yeah. And so you say there wasn't a strong male presence in the family. You mean that in terms of quantity or quality? Because your uncle was there, but what was the nature of his... What was he like? Okay. Uh, my uncle um, worked in the local newspaper and had been there for, I don't know, many years, but he ended up his entire career working for the same newspaper, the Modesto B. So he would go to work early in the morning and come home around, I don't know, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then uh, he would spend, himself, spend his time in his private room with his dog. So there was very little interaction except at dinner time. And at dinner time, he would sit at the end of the table and my mother and I would sit at one side and my grandmother and my aunt would sit on the other side. So that was the table and that was the dinner that we experienced. Um, and that was the majority of my interaction with my, with my uncle. From time to time, we would take trips with my aunt and uncle and that was the other, you know, prolonged exposure to him. And he was very, um, uh, not dominating, but very self-sufficient and uh, pretty much went along. And uh, so my aunt and my grandmother were pretty much making most of the decisions and he just went along and provided financial support, but didn't really control the family and say, this is what we're gonna do. Okay, so apathetic to a point. Correct. Correct. Going along for the ride. Exactly. In a in a resentful way, or just a just there kind of way. Um, certainly not resentful. It was not an outward demonstration of either concern or meanness or madness in any way. It was just he was there and he was part of the, part of the environment, but not a strong personality. He yeah. was just very content. Understood. And so because of this, like you said, your role models, the idea, the vision that you sort of had for what you wanted to be came from radio shows, from listening to the sports programs, and then at some point watching the sports programs. Correct. Are there particular athletes that stand out in your mind? Absolutely. Um, people uh, growing up with the San Francisco 49ers and um, the San Francisco Seals and then the Giants, it was 
Willie Mays, Mays, it was Frankie Albert, it was Leo Namalini. These are people who are very strong uh, personalities, leaders, uh, successful in their own right, and uh, front page kind of personalities. So my vision of what a man should be or what I wanted to be when I grew up is somebody that um, had those same characteristics, somebody who was a leader, somebody who strove for perfection, somebody who made a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, and you've become that, essentially, not on the play field, the ball field, but in business and in your community. Um, Do you feel that way? Absolutely. I feel so comfortable having been successful in the in the business and the community that we live in. Uh, and it's beyond my expectations. And frankly, from where I came in Bodesto, I never expected to be where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never thought about it in terms of a business career. It was only after several years of going through college and military that I came to the conclusion that that's something I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I want to step back through your, your phases before I, and the transitions of each. But before we do, let's take a moment to talk about these successes that you have mentioned and I've seen in your life, even the ones that you haven't expected. Um, how would you characterize your successes? Or may, maybe there's a list of achievements that, that you're particularly proud of. Um, well, the first thing was the success of um, providing for my family. Mm-hmm. I grew up, as I mentioned, in, in the Depression and never had a lot of financial wherewithal or comfort that I was going to be able to, um, you know, buy a house or buy a car or any of those sorts of things. And so um, my success basically, I would put in, a number of categories. One, the financial success uh, and the business success are certainly paramount that allowed me to provide for my family. So that was a major success. I was always concerned that I wasn't going to have enough to take care of my family from a healthy perspective or a food perspective or a housing perspective. And so that was a driver for me. And so that was something that I always felt I wanted to do. And that's one example of a success. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, now, uh, something I want to look at is is how people from different backgrounds and from different communities and with different belief systems tend to define success. So it would also be helpful to see, you know, maybe your business in and of itself was a success or starting the charter school was a success, which you did um, you know, over a decade ago in this community or helping the hospital um, because essentially everyone values something different. So we can start to look at what you valued and what it drove you to do. Um, so would you consider those other achievements as, as proud moments? Absolutely. And let me talk a little bit about each one of those because um, at a fairly early age, I'm going to say in my early 20s, uh, I decided I wanted to take control of my own destiny. And I didn't necessarily want to be uh, controlled by others in terms of what I could accomplish. So that prompted my decision to start my own business as opposed to working for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that was in, uh, you know, 19, 
69. Um, so working for myself and growing a business was a risk that I decided I wanted to take because uh, I felt it was important for me to take control of my own life. And uh, getting back to the leadership role I saw in a quarterback or somebody of that ilk. Um, in terms of specific uh, accomplishments in the community, my strengths, I think, are starting things or having a vision of something that could happen, could be, uh, become real, and then putting together teams of people and individuals that have the skill set to execute on that. And the charter school you mentioned is an example. Uh, we put, brought together a number of families because what we wanted was a, a school that represented our vision for quality education. Um, another example is building the Field of Dreams, which was an early experience here in Sonoma. And what is that? Uh, Field of Dreams is, a, uh, uh, is approximately six different fields for high school, I mean for uh, local sports soccer and baseball in particular that we built from scratch on an empty field uh, back in the 1980s um, and bringing together a group of people to make that happen and I was the president or the leader of that particular initiative um, and then building the new emergency room at the Sonoma Valley Hospital it was much needed and the beauty of that is it served all the people whether you were rich or poor the same thing was true of the Field of Dreams, that athletic field. Rich or poor, everybody could participate. The same for the charter school. There was no division. It was available to anybody that had a need or desire. And so that's kind of a common thread and probably defines what I find part of my success. And uh, on the business side, being in the staffing world, it was a a beautiful business from the perspective is you're helping everybody. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you're making a living at it. A person would walk in and want a job and we would help them do that. And an employer wanted a good employee, which was you know, a challenge, and we would help them do that. So mm -hmm. we were a matchmaker at the same time we were generating income for ourselves. Yeah. Now you had, you came from these relatively meager beginnings in, in Modesto it doesn't seem like your family had a lot of opportunities to do the types of things that you were doing. How did this become a value for you? How did this become an, an aim for you to, to help in these ways? It could have been enough just to escape poverty and, and have a stable job to support your family. Um, Was it really from these models of, of athletics and MVPs and, and leadership? I, I think it was partially that, but during the period that I was in college and then in the U.S. Army, there were certain iconic experiences that I think had a fundamental and, and major impact on my life. First, when I joined a fraternity, um, I was relatively insecure, but during that four or five years I was in college, um, people identified within me uh, characteristics that they felt were valuable that I didn't see myself but became apparent over a period of time and they would give me responsibilities and leadership that I never expected but they felt that I possessed that and it was demonstrated over a period of time so that 
I was constantly foisted into a leadership role, which I thrived on, had no initial desire to do it, but people said, this is something you should do. And uh, I acquiesced and found it very satisfying. And, and you it found was, yourself in that quarterback role. Exactly. Yeah. And I enjoyed the responsibility. Uh, it was something that I didn't strive for, but when it was provided, I said, I like this and I'm good at it. And so when I ended up being the president of the fraternity my last year and a half, I felt good about it because it was successful. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, one of the uh, real experiences is going through um, a period where they take the, the newcomers in the fraternity and put them through a hell week. Mm -hmm. And I've it heard was, of this. yes, and it was very stressful and very challenging. And it was the first time in my life that I was actually afraid of failure and in a very condensed fashion. What and kind of things were they doing to stress you out? Well, they would not allow you to sleep, first of all. Okay. And then they would put you in a situation where you were blindfolded mm -hmm. and asked to do certain acts that you didn't really know what was going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, like being on the precipice of a cliff yeah. or at and the top to of the stairs. Yes, yeah. right. And uh, those kinds of things where you had to develop, uh, overcome the fear and trust and just do it. Mm -hmm. And then in the Army, right after college, when I was in the Army, I had just graduated from college and I was put in the situation where I was an enlisted man. And all of the sergeants <clears throat> were obviously picking on the people who had just graduated, and they put you through the same sort of hell that I went through as a pledge. And that is, I was deprived of sleep, I was deprived of food, I was asked to, you know, march at midnight for, you know, hours on end. And uh, so it was like going through hell week again, and, you know, within a four or five year period. And so having experienced that and come out the other side, uh, I felt like I can do this. I felt like if I can experience this and come out healthy, mentally and physically, it gives you a sense of satisfaction that you can really perform, really do things successfully. Yeah, so these experiences that from the outside, like hazing in a fraternity or how weak in the army, seemed like punishment to a certain extent because they break you down to the point where you think that you can't go any further and yet you continue to go, you realize a new sense of capability and confidence in yourself. Yes. And to put it another way, it was like a rite of passage in both cases that maybe some men or boys get in other circumstances. But in my case, those were two specific experiences that were very uh, indelibly imprinted on my mind over those th that time. And I came out the other side saying, I can do this. I can be successful as a person. Yeah, yeah, that makes great sense. And um, what, what do you think, you know, what did it do for you to have these guys in your fraternity believe in you in ways that you didn't think you believed in, that you could, that you believed in yourself. 
I mean, they gave you these this leadership role, these leadership capabilities. Did that ostensibly change your own belief in yourself? Absolutely. It gave me so much self-confidence because many of these older men had just returned from uh, the war. They had been in um, the Korean War, so they were coming back to college on the GI Bill. So they were significantly older than I was. And at the same time, they had tremendous faith. So they were seeing something in me that I hadn't seen. But that reflection, that level of confidence in me that they demonstrated made me feel my self-worth was you know, enhanced dramatically in that time frame. I felt very good about myself because they, they saw that in me that I didn't see myself that became real and it just built up my uh, self-confidence tremendously. Mm-hmm. So you've had these powerful experiences with other men through the army and through the fraternity and you didn't have a strong male figure in your life in the household Um, but you had these caring female figures that gave you plenty of love, it sounds like. Um, Were there any negative negative experiences with men that you feel you learned from as well? So sometimes we can learn, we can see someone that we want to emulate, and we learn to move towards that. Or we have experiences of men that we don't appreciate, and we learn or men or women, you know, either of our parents or something, and we move away from that. We move in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of things come to mind. First of all, when I was in college, I did an internship with a public relations firm and uh, for two summers. And during that period of time, uh, this man who was extremely well-respected in the public relations community, uh, introduced me to the side of the business that was extremely exciting. It was with Stanford Research Institute and the Western Electronics Show and Convention, which he was responsible for. Um, At the same time, uh, he was a gay man who had uh, designs on me. And uh, on several occasions, uh, took advantage of me sexually uh, while I was in college, and it was such a unique and uh, devastating and frightening experience that, once again, it was the negative impact. I just remember that so vividly because it was somebody I had respected that treme- created tremendous disappointment and disillusionment on my part mm-hmm. as he was taking advantage of me. And at the time, Uh, I was relatively naive with regards to uh, homosexuality. I really didn't understand what was happening until it was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's a perfect example of a negative experience. Um, A different experience uh, that was somewhat disappointing, I'll use that term, was uh, my second job out of college where I worked for a firm Uh, in the technology sector, and the man who I was working for was very, very hard on me and uh, had tremendously high expectations and was constantly harping at me about the length of my hair or what I was doing or not doing um, correctly in the business setting. 
And um, so uh, on the one hand, it was a challenge to my self-respect and my self-confidence. On the other hand, I was experiencing a standard or expectations that were extremely high and that his demands were invasive and, and, and scary. So that was not necessarily a positive experience, but when I look back upon it, it may have been very similar to hazing in the college or going through the service. Uh, it was a very difficult period where I went through it, didn't necessarily appreciate it at the time, but understood uh, what high standards really were, which were influential and impacted my life going forward as well. Yeah. Tell me more about that. I mean, it, it doesn't sound like it was as positive as the hazing or the, the hell week. It sounded like maybe at least during that period, it was something that, that tore you down more than built you up. And only much later did you take something positive from it. But I want to understand better. Right. Uh, I think what I took from that is um, making, because I think he really also saw the positive uh, side of me mm -hmm. and the fact that I could achieve something, that he was very hard on me. He was very expectant of me. I think from that experience, I imposed in many cases that same expectation on people that worked for me, mm -hmm. particularly my children, which means it was never good enough. No matter what it was, it was always, you can do better, with the idea that this was setting expectations that I knew that they could achieve that uh, were in some cases perceived as destructive. Uh, because that's the way I perceived it when he was constantly on me. It was never good enough, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. I do. I, mean, I think that's a thin line, um, right? Because it's true. We can always be better. Every single one of us can always be better. And yet at a certain point, that voice, whether it's internal or external, doesn't allow us to feel good enough in everyday life. And I think that's the theme that probably has gone through my life, that I've always felt I could survive, persevere, and meet or exceed those expectations. Um, I just wouldn't give up. I just would. Did it feel like a challenge when you got that from him? Or inside, were you saying, fuck you, I can do this? Or inside, was it tearing you down to a certain point um, or both? I, I think it was a combination of both. Initially, I think it was uh, uh, the, the lack of self-confidence. I would start to question, can I do this? Do I want to do this? And then something within me said, not only can I do it, I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And it was self it was self-imposed, a, a drive in me. I can't explain where it came from, except that innately, my experience in the past up until that point said, yeah, Gary, you can do this. And uh, um, I think 
that was one of the factors that drove me to the point that I, I want to be in business for myself because I don't want to be held back or criticized uh, by others. I want to be in control of my own. I know what I can do. Just get out of my way and let me do it. Mm, I see. So almost this liberation to an extent where you have decided, well, I know what's good enough. I don't need someone else to tell me what's good enough. And therefore, I should go work for myself. Absolutely. And make that happen. Instead of sit here and have someone nitpick everything that right. I do. So he was an impetus or a catalyst for you to really make that leap. Absolutely. And every person I worked for, I had four or five jobs in my you know, 20s and early 30s. Um, and in every case, I felt the organization or the boss was, were making decisions that I didn't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. And I thought there was a better way. And uh, part of it was my naivete, but part of it was uh, my ability to envision a better way yeah. and being able to uh, take away all the barriers or obstacles to making that happen would be my liberation or my ability to do something on my own. Yeah. Now, I don't want to gloss over your revelation of this, this sexual abuse that you had um, without at least acknowledging and saying thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and I also want to, to allow an opportunity for you to talk about because certainly our sexuality, you can't talk about masculinity or manhood without talking about the threat of being, you know, emasculated by society or your peer group or certain people in your life. So I want to just ask what you feel like was the impact if you have awareness to that, what was the impact of that experience for you, whether it was in relationships or how you felt about yourself or, or maybe it was, was nothing, but, but I want to open that up. Uh, at the time that those occasions arose during my college years, I was also uh, dating uh, my first wife. And so uh, it was a very complex time because I felt frightened when this was going on and I felt like it wasn't anything I wanted, in fact, quite the contrary. And so I found a way to escape that relationship by saying I don't want to be in this mentorship, in this internship any longer. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, you know, I was in my late teens. I was quite sexually motivated, if you know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, in retrospect, I'm not sure what impact it made, except I finally, I, I for the first time recognized that that kind of experience happens in this world. And it was totally foreign to me until that point. Mm -hmm. So it was a new experience that I didn't want, didn't enjoy, and uh, was frightening. And I, it, it became clear to me that, my God, I now understand what a homosexual is about. Mm -hmm. It was enlightening. Well, and the, and the potential power dynamics and, and sexual dynamics that can also exist in a workplace. Absolutely, because he was my boss, my mentor, mm -hmm. and yet he was taking advantage of me so I could 
now understand as time went on how in the workplace the mentor or boss employee relationship can have a tremendous impact on what happens in the interpersonal side or the sexual side of uh, those experiences or relationships. Yeah, I think it's hard to, um, I think that's a great lesson because it's not always easy to see the impact you have in the workplace. I mean, if you're in a position of power, just because you're in a position of power doesn't necessarily mean you feel like you're in a position of power. So you may see something or someone that you want and not realize the extent of your influence just because you're above them in, in the hierarchy. But it's important to have that recognition, and that's a lesson that you got the hard way in a lot of respects. Absolutely. And even when I was the uh, owner of my own business and I had the majority of the staff were females, in retrospect, it, uh, it quickly became apparent to me that many of the females liked me, not necessarily sexually, but liked me, adored me, and felt uh, like they wanted to be around me. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't really appreciate the power of my personality and uh, my role. It, it was more that they liked me as a person but it could have been a combination of the power I, I, I had in the workplace as well. Are you saying that at that moment you felt you just loved the adoration and you didn't necessarily associate it with your power? And that, Correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Uh, it's only but, sort of in retrospect or afterwards that you say, well, maybe a lot of that adoration was because I was the boss. Correct. Yeah. Because it's, you know, in today's culture, it's so front page. And in the 19, you know, 60s and 70s, that wasn't the case. It would, it probably was going on, but it wasn't perceived as something negative. It wasn't perceived as something abnormal, and it wasn't something that people were talking about. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, this this time period is classic. This time period is what we think of as the birthplace of man in America. At least what I the fifties are like muscle cars and cigarettes in the in the shirt sleeve and grease lightning and and this is the area that you grew up in. Absolutely. And it, for me, it's the birthplace of masculinity as I inherited it. Now it's changing vastly. We can talk about that as well. But I want to know where you fit into this picture of muscle cars and strong guys. And I mean, what was your personality and 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 peace and all this. How'd you see yourself in that mix? And how'd you see that broader picture? Um, your definition of what was happening is spot on because when I was in high school and even in college, uh, it, uh, the ideal male model was somebody who was very strong, uh, very powerful, um, and adored by women. Uh, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, strong cars, strong, uh, you know, strong actions, athletics, uh, uh, all of those things played a major role in that environment. So uh, women were perceived as uh, individuals who were part of the relationship, but not the dominant part of the relationship. 
And so they, I, I'm going to use the term that may be perceived as derogatory, subservient and secondary, um, which has changed dramatically. But that was, the, that was the culture at the time. And it was pretty much accepted by everybody involved. It wasn't just the males. The females understood this was their role, this is their function. And um, everybody felt this is the way it should be. Yeah, and um, did you feel, did you have a sense that you were man enough? Did you fit this mold growing up? Um, in high school, not necessarily. In college, yes. Uh, just to paint the picture very specifically, uh, there was a gentleman in high school who I hung around with. His name was Murph the Surf, um, who was extremely powerful and represented what I would call manhood at that time. He always was more mature than everybody else, including myself, but he... Meaning more facial hair, more confidence, right, more all of that. Right, exactly. With cigarettes in his T-shirt, as you yeah. talked about, driving, you know, a hot ride into the, into the parking lot. Very dominant personality, very well f uh, respected at the same time, feared. He adopted me as somebody that he liked and adored. And once again, I can't tell you what the characteristics were that he saw in my, me, but he said, you're my guy, Gary. And so that kind of was the precursor to what happened when I was in college. People saw in me something that they liked and respected and wanted to be part of it. Um, uh, so th that's a, an example of where we weren't part of the elite group, the social group, uh, but we were individuals who were perceived by the rest of the classmates as somebody very special. Don't mess with Nelson and Murph. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Now, tell, just say a little bit about what Murph went on to be. In. Well, he left uh, high school in his senior year and moved, but a number of years later, I read in, a, in Time magazine that he had been arrested in Florida for stealing uh, the Hope Diamond uh, and incarcerated for a number of years. And this was my Murph the Surf. This that was, was front guy. page. Yeah. And when he was incarcerated, he found uh, God and uh, became a preacher. And as far as I know, I assume he's still living. He's still practicing as a uh, minister someplace in the, in the Southwest, Southeast. Mm -hmm. um, but what a revelation when I saw that. And I said to myself, yes. That's Murph the Surf, taking control and making it happen, doing something very spectacular. Yeah. It was unfortunately on the wrong side of the law, but that was his persona. Yeah, yeah. I read an article about him. I forget what it was in, but um, they painted him as the, gosh, like the, the, the all-American James Bond. Of, of sorts. I mean, he went down and become sort of ingrained in the surf culture, but was this pretty boy, all American. And, and yet at the same time, he's setting up these plots to steal the largest diamond in the world and, and all this. So um, a fascinating character. Yes. And, you know, uh, when he was in high school, I could see him doing something like that. When I read about it, I said, yes. I could see him taking charge of his own destiny in the ocean, riding the surf at the same time, plotting something very, very dramatic and pulling it off successfully, which was almost unheard of. Yeah. And um, 
There's another example of where I identified with somebody like that because of his power and his success. And he saw something in me that, you know, brought my self-confidence up as well. Yeah. Well, it sounds like there's this pattern, at least early in your life, of being taken under the wing of certain men. You know, Murph being one, and then your Korean War buddies in college at the fraternity. And then, um, you know, just having the mentorship of people in the Army. But then you become a leader. And then it's up to you to decide who's in your tribe and who comes under your wing. How did that switch happen? When did you become the one choosing who came to you and who you surrounded yourself with? And, and did you notice that shift when it was happening in your life? It evolved during the period I was working for others, and it came very vividly to my mind that I can do this better or as good, and I need to do it on my own without the frustration or controls of others. And so that's when I made the decision I was going to start business of my own with very little money and just roll the dice because I had a, uh, I think, a uh, six-year-old and an eight-year-old at home at the time and decided to quit my job where I was making decent money and uh, start my own business. And at that point, surround myself with capable people who were as good, if not better than I was, to build a successful enterprise. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that most of the people that I hired during that early period were females. Strong uh, females who were self-sufficient in many respects and very talented as opposed to hiring males. It was almost uh, because I saw what my mother, my aunt, and my grandmother had done and their dedication, their loyalty, their hard work, and their ability to serve. And so I don't know whether it was uh, conscious, but that's, that's how I built the organizations, both business and professional and philanthropically with strong women who are capable of doing more than I could do by myself. Yeah, interesting. As soon as you started to say that, I was seeing the parallel between how you describe the women growing up in your family as really being the decision makers and the strength and the the backbone. And, and then you perhaps in a lot of ways recreated that dynamic where you were. Um, Absolutely. That, yeah. in, in business, the first four or five people I hired were females who had strong experience that could help us grow the business. And even in starting the charter school, I was the only male involved. There were four women and myself that made this happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, the message now that I'm talking about it is that your own experience uh, drives decisions you make along the way. And you have, uh, you have your model of what a male should do and what a female should do and how they can meld to be successful uh, together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you made that work really well. 40 years of business, of you running the business, um, at least, and then uh, the business continues today. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, that's a... 
a perfect example of success. The success that I felt in business was really uh, self-fulfilling, but, but the ribbon on the package was when I was able to transition that to the family members, my four sons, in a way I felt that they were totally responsible and experienced enough to handle it. And not that it was a gift to them, it was something that they had heard the opportunity to acquire and purchase. So that was uh, uh, a success that was combining family experience as well as business that was not just a business success in and of itself. It was yeah. a combination. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that now, the, the, the aspect of family. Um, and, and let's work towards this legacy that you've left for your family and for us, your boys. But I want to start, you know, when fatherhood began for you, because you grew up without a father, and yet here at, in your mid-20s, you, you had your first child. So I want to know essentially what changed for you when you had your first child and what your concept of fatherhood was at that time, or if you had any existential thoughts about or experience about that. Um, I can remember vividly at the time when uh, Craig and Mark were born and the role I wanted to play. And I would describe it as I want to be the provider and make sure that we had the essentials to have a good family home, meaning the food and the and the shelter. But more than that, I wanted to interact with them as a father that was less a disciplinarian and more of a playmate, a friend, a I wanted to experience basketball or football or baseball with them. And so I would coach. And in many respects, it was my opportunity to live with them and through them, uh, you know, virtually. Um, but at the same time, uh, some of the characteristics that I don't particularly am not particularly proud of came out in, in terms of my expectations, my demands. In some cases, it wasn't necessarily articulated verbally, but the expectation was nonverbal. You, you can do better. You know, why aren't you doing X, Y, and Z? Uh, I mean, I, I remember that as it relates to all four of my boys, um, but more importantly, the, the older boys, because... I was very much involved with what baseball because I knew it, mm -hmm. and uh, I was very hard on them. And in some cases, uh, you know, Mark was an experienced and very good athlete. Craig was less so, but I was equally hard and demanding on both of them. And it was, you know, probably their experience wasn't as enjoyable as it could have been. Well, sure, and I, I think that's true of anyone who's a child, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. There's always room for improvement from the child's perspective. Absolutely. Um, now, where did that sense of fatherhood come from for you? You said really clearly that you knew it was important for you to provide a good home and to provide enough for them to have a comfortable living. I, where I, did that come from? And, I, and to you, essentially, that meant fatherhood. 
yes. the responsibilities of fatherhood. And I think it was because I had reacted to the lack of that when I was growing up. I felt that void. I wanted to be there in their school when it was father and son experience. I wanted to be there on the field when you know they were pra practicing. Um, uh, I wanted to make sure that my father, who never did provide, was an example of what not to do. And I think in many cases you learn what not to do as importantly as what you should do when you see, when you experience growing up. Um, and as long as you learn it, whether it's positive or negative, the important thing is you then form a model of what you want to be. Uh, even though it may not be modeled in your particular example, you react of, well, I don't want to be that, so I want to be this. Yeah. And so I think that's how it all evolved. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like it changed at all uh, on your second set of kids, on, on Justin and I? Was there something you thought about going into to parenting us that had shifted for you? Um, I, I think it shifted in a modest way, but not extensively. Uh, and part of it was because the business was growing and a lot of my time this was you know, with you and uh, Justin, uh, you probably got less of my time than even Craig and Mark did. Um, and plus the fact your mother was much more dominant in the household than my first wife was. So it was, uh, it was much more of a shared responsibility as far as raising you and Justin. And she would, she would be the bad cop. And I would come home and be the good cop uh, and, you know, try and placate or make things as comfortable as possible. But my experience and my time with both of you was much more limited than it was with uh, Mark and Craig, surprisingly. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't know the relationship of this to this discussion, this broader discussion of becoming a good human being, becoming a good man or or what it means, uh, what masculinity means in America today. But I want to ask the question about your first divorce, which is to say you already talked about how difficult it was, how this was a, a pain point for you as a child to be a child of divorce, and then to, to experience that yourself. What was that experience like for you? What did it do to you inside? And then what does that look like in retrospect? How did that experience change you? Right. Well, it was very traumatic for me, but also for Mark and Craig. Um, it was something I never expected, and it was a shock when it became apparent to me that um, uh, I couldn't continue the marriage relationship, and I don't necessarily have to go into it, but the la there was a tremendous breakdown in trust between myself and my first wife. And I decided if I can't have a trust relationship, then I've got to move on. So that was very difficult, and it was very traumatic. And I can remember vividly talking to Mark and Craig uh, on my own and telling them, I'm having, to, I'm having to leave your mother and move, and explain to them when they were like in middle school or early high school, that this was the case and how difficult it was, but it was something I had to do. And I felt terrible about it. The guilt uh, 
has lasted for many, many years. It's less today than it was at the time, but the intensity of that guilt because I was putting on my children something that I had experienced and I was leaving, uh, leaving them. And uh, it was very difficult, let me put it this way. And I tried to compensate for that probably in incorrectly or in inappropriate ways by you know, giving them material things and, and spending, not spending the time because I wasn't in the household. I was off working. I was trying to develop another relationship with your mother, Marcia. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of moving parts at the time. So there was a tremendous amount of guilt that I've tried to compensate for um, over the years. Yeah. And when you describe difficulty, I mean, I think I want to understand what that meant to you. I mean, we live in an age where this thing called mental health is a bigger and bigger issue. Um, we all as human beings experience hardship. We are all going to experience heartbreak if we breathe long enough. How would you describe difficulty and, and how do you see yourself just continuing to take step, steps day after day to make it through that time? The... Um traumatic experiences in my life, particularly as it relates to uh, the divorce and the situation that created that divorce were so impactful. And um, what's that impact? What did it do to you? It, it was hurtful. It was tremendously hurtful. Um, how could somebody do this? How could somebody hurt me so badly? And uh, it was, I think, the first time in my life that I felt that deep hurt from somebody that I loved and uh, created a, a, I've got to be much more conscious now of the kinds of relationships I'm in and make sure that I am careful of me. Be a lot more careful about how you put your heart out or how you trust. And um, it's, I was blessed because I quickly found Marcia, who was very supportive and kind of restored my ability to trust. And I think that's very important is to be quickly rebuild your trust when you've been devastated is the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it was a combination of having somebody else in my life as well as uh, my natural resilience based upon the experience I've had prior to that that I've already talked about. You're talking about the hazing through the fraternity and your experience in the army. Right. Um, all of that teaching you natural resilience or Correct. giving you that, that foundation of resilience. I can get through this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. So what happened next? I mean, you had this phase of the business and raising children, and where are you at now? In your life, you talked about this this next phase of awakening, and or how did you describe it? I forget. The uh, the best way to describe it is I'm a big believer in Maslow's hierarchy, mm. and uh, 
it kind of describes the life that I've led in terms of taking care of yourself and the essentials at the lowest end. And then as you uh, garner more tools or pieces, uh, you're actually able to fulfill your dreams, as I put it. And uh, having a successful business was one part of that. But then when we had a major liquidity event and I had the financial resources to really explore uh, uh, what I really wanted to do but didn't have necessarily the skill set creatively to do, whether it was to build a hospital or to start a charter school or to build a, a, a playground or to make a film. All these things I was able to do because I had the financial wherewithal and the, and the self-confidence to do it. But now that I'm reflecting upon it and talking about it, you don't really need the financial wherewithal and the material aspects to follow your dream. It's a self-imposed perspective. Um, I could have done this with no money years ago, but I didn't because my perspective was I need to do this, this, and this first. But um, now I'm able to do almost anything I want because I feel comfortable that I've got my house in place, my food in place, my kids taken care of, I can do. I'm free to do what I really want to do instead of sacrificing myself for others or other options. Mm -hmm. Is that clear? That is clear. Okay. Yeah. So you had your own significant, you've had your own significant experiences. You've raised four boys. You're now in this period of life where you're doing absolutely what you want to do, how do you look at, from this vantage point, how do you look at young men or young people growing up and what would you want to tell them is necessary to become an adult? What types of experiences are necessary to, to traverse from childhood to adulthood the best way I could describe it is to uh, push yourself to the limits that you think are reasonable and it doesn't necessarily be in business or athletics it could be in any uh, passion or any profession or any dream that you may have, but allow yourself uh, the opportunity to experience and learn and grow from each one of those experiences. Because as I've tried to describe it, those learning experiences were um, confidence builders, uh, ego builders, providing me with the tools that allowed me to feel successful, to feel like I'm a man, mm -hmm. to feel I can succeed with my family, with my wife, with the community at large. Uh, my self-confidence is almost too much. And I sometimes need to ratchet it back down because it can be uh, 
destructive on not only on my part but on others who I touch as well. Mm -hmm. But to your point, I would suggest that young men allow themselves to experience and pursue their dream and learn what it is that provides them the self-confidence and the talent and the, the values that make them whole, make them feel really good about themselves. Um, and I think that's what in our culture today is somewhat amiss. And that is allowing male or female to feel really good about themselves. There's so much negativity. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, I would want to tell every human being, do what you need to do for yourself. Take care of yourself first, and then you can take care of others that are in your life. So you need to find out what it will be or what those experiences will be to allow you to feel really good about you. Well, let's talk about that because let's deconstruct that because I think that is, we need to be really clear on this message. Because if I look at what's going on in society today, there's a level of self-centeredness that is actually destructive. But you're talking about a level of self-nourishment that allows you to serve. And so how as leaders or elder men or humans in our communities, how do we distinguish that for people? Because we've got there are children all over the place being given trophies for not doing anything and for, you know, just sitting around playing games and, and eating whatever they want to eat. And that's not leading to them being good people. So that's not what you mean necessarily, is it, when you say find what makes you feel good? Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, I'm glad you made that distinction because... I was raised in a different time, and today's environment does not, is not conducive to providing the kind of structure, the kinds of values that would help an individual, male or female, let's talk about male, to really feel good about themselves. Because individuals need to have feedback or uh, reassurance our confidence placed in them because they do something well or they do something right as opposed to you get a reward just because you're you. Um, there needs to be a constant re, uh, reassurance that what you're doing is right and that confirms your own success and your own self-value. You need to feel good about yourself. And I tried to do that when you were growing up in terms of your music or your performance on the field. You did a great job. But many times um, that doesn't necessarily tra translate into that person feeling good. Even though I might say it, you have to feel it. And the question then becomes, what can we do in our culture or what should the individual do to make sure that they understand the value that they bring to themselves and to others. So it has to be a self-validation, not searching for validation externally. Correct. And yet there's also a part of it that has to be pushing yourself or aimed at ultimately serving others. I think that it's tough. It's not easy to get to that point. No. It's it not easy to distinguish this difference between not looking for approval outside yourself, but finding it inside 
but doing that with the intent to serve outside yourself. And, you know, it all comes together at the end of the day because I get so much um, respect from individuals and the community based upon what I do and what I contribute, and it makes me feel good. And so there's a circle here. I do it because I want to do it because I think it needs to be done, but it's self-fulfilling and it's self I get so much self-confidence because I'm doing something well. People see it, they respect it, which makes me want to do more. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's, that's not something that was modeled for me necessarily in, uh, in a philanthropic way in my family. The way it was exemplified is my, my family, meaning my three women and my uncle in my life, sacrificed for me by giving me love and the basics, not doing anything necessarily in the community. Um, and others were doing that, but I'm now of, I'm now capable of doing both of those things, which is beautiful for me because it just builds my confidence. Not only can I do it in business, but in my family, but I can do it for a broader community which is something I want to model. I want to be able to serve, as you said, not only myself and my smaller community, meaning my family, but others who don't have the benefit of what I've experienced or what I have. Mm -hmm. That sharing is really very redeeming and very self-satisfying. Mm -hmm. So if some young man came to you, say one of your grandsons, and said, you know, Grandpa, I have... I'm not sure what my values are. I'm not sure what my passions are. And, and I see you as an example of someone who has clear values and clear passions. How do I figure out what those are? What would you tell him or her? I would say explore, try new things, and make sure you get a response that you like it, you're good at it, but when you find it, you pursue it with vigor and with passion. And I think that's one of the ingredients in my life that I feel is so important, is to find a passion that I feel so strongly about that it almost is blinding to me and to others. It's so focused. And it allows me to be successful, but in a very focused and narrow way. Yeah. Um, but I think everybody has to find their own passion and their own dream. And so I wouldn't say it has to be this or that. It's up to you to find it and explore it and look around, give yourself an opportunity. And then once you have a taste of it, you will have some knowledge of what it is you want to do. You want to be a writer. You want to be a singer. You want to be something. Just go for it. And if you find that you have found your path, go. If it's not the right path, change the path. It's never too late. You can change your path. And I think this is one of the issues today in our culture. People decide that it's not worth making a commitment personally in love, in business, uh, those, those commitments are much more transitory. Mm -hmm. 
when I married, I married because I wanted to be in that relationship long-term. It's different today in terms of I wanted to be a, uh, run a business. It wasn't today I run a run a business and tomorrow I want to do something else. Having that commitment and that passion that I want to see this through, not necessarily forever, but to its logical conclusion. Yeah. And it could happen in a year or it could happen in 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What else is wrong with men today? What else is missing for them? It is a combination of the frenetic pace are, we're running at in our society. I'm talking about the U.S. now. And the number of interruptions or um, the pace at which we're running gives you little time for reflection, little time for thinking. And that gets in the way of maturation, of growth. And uh, I think if we could change our environment, it would be take yourself away from the frenetic pace and give yourself time to think and visualize and dream and then work towards that as opposed to the constant interruption or reaction to the impulses that happen on a real-time basis. Yeah. And um, that's easier said than done, but I can see so many of our youth growing up with cell phones in their hand and the lack of a nuclear family where they have the comfort and the love that they need. And uh, so there's real damage that's being done to these young people, not necessarily purposely, but the parents are off doing something else or have a hard time because they're addicted. Um, and so it's a combination of those factors that need to be addressed and it's not easy to do in a holistic way. You need to do it one person at a time, one family at a time. There's no panacea, there's no policy that the government can enact and says this is the way it should be done. It's the breakdown of what I think are important ingredients to growing up as a male. And that is you need to feel loved and respected and secure and provided an environment that is not constantly poking at you or impacting you. Give yourself time to read, give yourself time to think as opposed to, you know, the cell phone or the TV or the Marvel comic book stuff. Um, it just inundates you and changes the way you grow up, the, changes the environment in which you are being raised. Mm -hmm. So both for fathers today and for children today, slow down enough to have time to reflect, step away from the noise to have enough time to reflect. And time enough to connect, time enough to spend with your wife or your lover or your children. Spend the time. In many cases, it's, you know, here's the phone or let's go to a game. The days of taking a trip to Tahoe with your family or going to, uh, 
you know, Europe or Africa. Um, you don't spend the quality time with your family or your individual to get to know them and for them to get to know you. Mm-hmm. And that's the good, bad, and the ugly. In other words, nobody's perfect. But at least if you know who they are and respect them or understand them, it goes a long time, long ways towards deciding what you want to be and how you are going to be as an adult. Yeah, so this the importance of this connection with those in your own in your own family and community is also an opportunity to reflect on who you want to be that we've lost. Absolutely. I you know somebody asked one time, who are your role models? Who did you look up to as 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 your mentor? Well, Bill Walsh, for example, the coach of the 49ers was one who I looked at from afar and and was I, I adored him. Um, Lefty O'Doul, who was the manager of the um, uh, San Francisco uh, Seals, or even Harry Truman, who was a Democrat during the end of World War II. I just admired his strength and his ability to do what needed to be done in a very isolated way uh, because people were always criticizing him from afar. And um, the steadfastness and uh, so those are the kind of people that stood out that I was aware of. These are front page kinds of people that I looked at and analyzed from afar. But uh, we need people like that in our lives. It's not necessarily the hip hop singer or the you name it. It's uh, it's not somebody that's drug addicted. It's not somebody that's espousing, you know, you know, whatever's popular in our culture today, which is taking advantage of women every, you know, six minutes. Um, it's, it's, it's creating an image of what is good and trying to model that so that other people can see it. That's what I try to do in my family and a community, and I'm not 100% successful, I know that, but I try to do, uh, what's best every single day mm-hmm. and do it with a full heart. Yeah. Now you alluded to before this, there's no panacea. There's no solution other than each one of us trying to, to live this way. That being said, are there ways that we could design these experiences into our society? Do you, do you see solutions that can be made at a, at a broader level, at least at a community level perhaps, that, that we could try? Yes. The best way I could express it is that if we would look at every child and say, we want to provide the, the family support system, whether it's their nuclear family or their biological family or others, if I could take every child who needed a different environment or a different experience and put them in that environment or a different environment, it's almost like uh, putting them in a foster home. In other words, if I could design the ideal family situation and expose them to it two hours a day or five days a week uh, and provide that experience to them, I would do that. Mm-hmm. It's called mentorship and mentorship as 
you know, there's such a lack of effective mentors in your own family or in the community that if we had a program like that that was institutionalized or part of our structure, and I think in some ways, if you look back at the tribes, uh, even though the father may be going off, the mothers would create a culture that would take care of the raising of these children in a very positive way, in a very instructional way. If we could replicate that and take out some of the distractions that I've talked about before, the addiction, the, the pace at which we live. And that's why people, uh, I mean, this may sound politically inappropriate, but people in the Midwest who are not living as phonetically as people on both coasts, mm -hmm. which are technology driven, people who are more agrarian, more less impacted by what's happening in our world. Yeah, salt we'll, of the earth. Absolutely. The rhythm of nature, not at this other right. pace. The people who don't want to be elitists and tell everybody else what to do, but the people who understand that they've got to do for themselves. And that's the environment we want to create. Mm -hmm. I want to give my four sons the ability to do what they need to do for themselves and the confidence to do that. And, and how, do, how do we do that? I mean, there's no way that we're stopping the, the runaway train that is technological advancement and, and distribution of this infrastructure and, and culture throughout the world. I mean, that's, it's spreading faster than we can even imagine, let alone think we can control it at some point. So what can we do? Do you have any sense for that? So that's the tsunami that you just described that's happening all over the world. Mm -hmm. And my feeling is there has to be a recognition of what the issue is. Mm -hmm. And the recognition is that you can't say, well, it's a redistribution of the wealth, which was the panacea. It, it's more a redistribution of important values, mm -hmm. of a culture, of a structure, of what is important and what is not important. And once that issue is identified as being important and we want to make a change or make it better, then we can certainly take the steps to create an environment or structure or tools to allow that to happen. Um, well, I don't have a defined path to get there. All I'm saying is if we in the United States feel like this is important to do for our children or our men, we have to understand that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. And if so, what are the important elements that are lacking or need to be present that we can put in place and at the same time pull away or minimize, not eliminate, pull away some of the distractions or the difficulties that get in the way of growing up, of being a person, of being a whole human being or a man. And to properly define the issue or the problem, which in your mind is probably an issue of values. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, a question of values and priorities. Uh, understanding what the important values are that we want to inculcate in our society and in, in a person, number one. But also, what are the priorities that need to be put in place? How important is it 
and giving it the resources that are necessary to address it. Even if you define the issue, you need to have the values and the resources to be able to enact change. And change is very difficult. And so it needs to be followed with the kinds of passion that I've talked about. If this is really important, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And let's not just throw money at it. Let's put the program together that really works. Start small and see if it works and then expand it. Is it scalable? It's how you build a business. It's how you build a product is you demonstrate its success and then you replicate it over and over again. Um, so maybe there are multiple tools and functions that we have to put in place, but let's define how important is it. Until it becomes important, it's just talk. Right. So we need to prioritize it at a certain point, and I think that's happening. I think there's, there's outrage about how women are feeling they've been treated by men in a broad, at a broad level, you know, across the board. And there's also, it's becoming apparent that, that rates of mental health issues are going up for men in particular. Suicide rates are going up for men in particular. Um, so I think the problem is rising in priority. And to me, that's a good thing. I, I don't like to see all these problems, but I think, I think what we're just seeing is the recognition of something that's been there and it's being elevated in priority. But then there's the question of values. And if you were leading this program, what would be a couple of the values that you would have us consider as if we could brainwash into the community or, or implant as important? For you, what are those? Or a couple of them? Um, I would say the, the most important values to me are... Um, Honesty, trust, um, um, honesty and trust and ethics. And I will even go so far as to say spirituality, the belief that uh, there's a reason for us to be and to contribute or to give or to serve. And... Um, that's the way I feel today is I want to be able to help others and give back or to give or to share or to serve. Mm -hmm. And that's a value that I think is really important for people to see, believe in and share. And for example, I think one of the best or most important calling today is somebody that can help other people. I'm talking about the physical health, the mental health, uh, any, any need that an individual has, if I can do it at a very high level, be, but I'm not experienced, I'm not a professional, um, but if I could help anybody that has a need, uh, I would want to be able to do that, to work with them individually or as a group or collectively. Yeah. And, uh, I don't mean by parading on the street saying, you know, we want equal rights. I would want to make sure that in my family or in my business or in my community, women or people are treated the way they need to be treated. What can I do uh, to create the environment to allow that to happen? But if I were a professional, what can I do to help that woman or man become 
healthy and feel good about themselves so that they can in turn serve others. Taking everyday action to make the change. Absolutely. Where you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I would almost describe that. You said serving the value of contribution to community or society, personal contribution. And that is so self-fulfilling and feels so good. It reinforces your self-worth when you're giving to others. Um, I can't tell you the number of cards I get during the course of the year saying, thank you for doing what you're doing. And these are people I don't even know. Now they're talking about maybe a contribution I made or uh, helping in a, with a local club or organization by donating my time or taking the lead in the newspaper about saying these are important issues that we as a community, taking the, those kind of leadership things, I do because I wanna serve, but the reflection or the response I get is self-fulfilling, meaning mm -hmm. I feel good about it because people appreciate it. They say, this needs to happen, this needs to be done, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I think that self-respect is so important that that was the important takeaway for me. Yeah, the self-respect that you get from serving Correct. and contributing. Yes. Well, this discourse began for me or begins for me with the question of what does it mean to become a man because that's a process in, in which I'm curious because I consider myself a man. But the, most of the things we've talked about today don't aren't specific to being a man or a woman. So the question that I have that comes up for me is, is there an importance or a significance to the difference of being a man or a woman in society, society today? And I think you have a unique perspective because you've had this, you can see sort of the trajectory of these things, perhaps being a child of, 37 and living in the 50s and seeing the 60s and the, the feminist revolution and seeing the last, you know, 30 years of the 90s and this millennial generation. And I'm sure you have your own beliefs on that, but does it matter whether we're talking about men or women in this discussion? I think, yes, it does. But at the same time, there are certain values that transcend male-female uh, that we've talked about in terms of finding your way and following your passion and the self-confidence that one needs. Um, I think those are common in both male and female. Um, but I think that one of the major differences is the perception in our society today of what a, an acceptable role is for a man or a woman uh, is changed dramatically. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but it's just changed. But from my perspective, I, there's nothing wrong with that change as long as we can reconcile how we can still exist together and have a satisfactory relationship as individuals or as a family. So um, I think, for example, having females more self-sufficient, more independent, less dependent on the male, uh, 
from a financial perspective and feeling that she's equal in many respects to the male is all healthy. Uh, at the same time, recognizing that how is the male reacting to that and responding to that and how does that all work together? And I'm not sure that there's real clarity in everybody's mind of what that should look like. And maybe it's not the same for everybody, but there should be a common understanding of what our culture needs and wants as relationships and as a family, meaning raising children. Um, because I think that's the important element in my mind uh, that needs to be considered. If we're going to have a society that's healthy, what is the right environment for bringing children into this world? And what is our role as parents or as mother and father? Uh, and how important is that as opposed to, it's just about me. Mm -hmm. Now it's about changing my life fundamentally because now I am a parent and it becomes now as important a role as it is to be an individual. It's to be now an apparent because you're influencing society in many, many respects for years to come. Yeah, so not just this focus on my individual development, but, or breaking out of my individual gender limitations, but what effect does that have on my relationship with my partner, whoever that is? And if we decide to parent children, how does that impact them? And then at a community level, deciding, at least being aware at minimum of the impact we're having on children. Absolutely. And I see that every day because as I say to people who are new parents, your priority has just changed. It's no longer just about you or your significant other. It's now about the responsibility you have of ensuring that your child or your children are raised in a way that is healthy mm -hmm. for them. And they are able to um, not only exist, but thrive in our community or our culture, or our society. That is your responsibility now. Mm -hmm. That is more important than your job or the lovemaking you have with your wife. You have changed priorities. Well, and I think one thing that we've lost in this society and I'd be interested to hear if you agree or disagree, is that if we look back at tribal societies or even just smaller communities, there was a general sense that, that even if you weren't the father or the mother, that you were responsible for the young men or the young women in that tribe or that community. In tribes, for example, it was really clear, you know, if we think... Um, I'd like to get some specific examples, but there would be a group of men. And, and when you became a woman or a man, you would then go live and interact throughout the days with the women. And then you would be with a group of mentors who were going to tell you and teach you about what it meant to be a woman. And that did two things. That, that gave mid-aged women who may or may not be mothers the responsibility of being mentors and embodying certain values. And then that gave that person who's new to the group of women or new to the group of men the expectation that they would live up to those, those embodied values. And you 
you put your finger on something very important, and that is that uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the father or the mother, but there has to be a group of people who provide that culture, that mentorship, that modeling that will help that child grow and thrive. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to come back to my experience at my fraternity where I had these five or six older gentlemen. They were in their you know, mid-20s when I was 18. And they had been experienced wherever in the world, but came back and some were married. They provided that mentorship, that modeling that I hadn't had up till that time. And so back to your tribal experience, they were my tribe. That was my tribe that I grew up in. And I lived it for five years. Mm -hmm. And it was life-changing for me. Now, how do we provide that for people who are not in college? Uh, that's a great question. It doesn't necessarily have to be fraternities. It could be in some other model. Well, how do we provide that? And how do we make young men, let's say 25 to 35, realize that they are the mentors, whether they have chosen it or not, they are the mentors for everyone who is 14 to, to 23. You know, that's their responsibility. Just by nature of, that's who 18-year-olds are looking at as mentors. And so they have to realize that's a responsibility. And somehow we have to make a shift in their minds too. And in my mind, that every day I go out there, I am the mentor for any young man I come across. And that's a sense of contribution. That could be a good thing. But it's also a, a, a responsibility for me to live with certain values because I am in this way impacting the future of, of men or anyone who is like me enough to look at me as a mentor. And the difficulty is you have a perspective that is very refreshing. But most people, most men are so busy doing something for them or somebody that they feel that is significant in their lives as opposed to looking at what they can do for men, young men generally. They are so focused on some other path that it doesn't, they don't take the time to really focus on the importance of how they can contribute to this age group or even one or two male individuals, mm -hmm. if they could make that important in their lives. For example, if you decided at your life that you wanted to really help young men and there were, you could replicate that, you know, a hundred times, that would be a significant contribution because it's not perceived as important today. And it should be. That's why this discussion we're having is so relevant because this needs to be ele elevated to a point where it's an issue that is important to our society, male and female, the nurturing, the modeling, the environment, because it's so fragmented, it's all about me and the me society, whether, not the me too, but it's all about the, you know, self-actualization, the way I've described it, is being able to serve and give back. In many cases today, it's all about how do I make me feel good, period, end of story. Yeah, but we need to add that level of that, that layer of responsibility and conversation like we're having today mm -hmm. to identify the problem and then to actually start solving it right
whether the solution is person by person or broadcasting the right messages or programs in education or extracurricular programs or something else that we haven't thought of yet, but identifying through conversation the problem and solution. Yes, and can I give you one additional example? At the charter school, we've just initiated a program called Social and Emotional Wellness. And this program is addressing the emotional and social needs of every child in the school, meaning kindergarten through eighth grade. And they come from very traumatized environments, but we have professionals who are working with the educational staff and saying, if you have children who are traumatized or in need, here's what you, it, it will look like. They're either acting out or they're withdrawing. They need help. And what is the help that you're going to provide? And so we have programs and tools that we're implementing at the charter school to help the teacher address the needs of the students. And then we have professionals that are on the campus that will work with those children as well to complement what is happening in that child's life. It's as important for the educator to understand I'm not just teaching the child how to do math or how to learn to read. I'm also addressing the emotional needs of that child so they grow up to be a healthy human being, male or female, because our society is not providing that environment like we used to 40 or 50 years ago where we had a really wholesome environment at home for the most part. That's deteriorated dramatically. Yeah, beautiful program, it sounds like. It is. It's a, it's a program that is relatively new and but very successful. And there's a direct correlation between the social and emotional wellness of the students and their ability to progress academically, which is wonderful. Their self-perception uh, uh, is enhanced dramatically. And so they feel better about themselves because they're now progressing academically and they're also progressing emotionally. Um, so it's treating the whole child, which is kind of a cachet frame of reference today but it's making sure that the child is able to learn at the same time they're provided the academic capability. Well, and we're seeing this pattern come up and come up again in your own story and in this program, having certain experiences in which your self-perception shifts for the positive and that allowing you in, in almost a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of way to, to make positive changes in your life. Absolutely. And we're currently doing a video of this program at the charter school. Why? We want all educators to understand that these tools are available. And at the same time, we want to go to major philanthropic entities like Benioff at Salesforce or Bill Gates and say, this program works because it's addressing the needs of every child. And it's also addressing the needs of the professionals in the classroom to be able to provide it. Yeah. Great. Well, any parting thoughts? Any last things you'd leave with, uh, with listeners? Um, this issue is so important and so relevant. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. It's a passion of mine. And I will just say to the listening audience, if there's any way that you can get involved in making sure that this issue is raised in the consciousness 
of our family or our society, uh, please help do so. And I think the emphasis and the passion that uh, Chase has exhibited in making this important to him is something that we should support in a broader way in our communities, in our society. So thank you for letting me be a part of it. Yeah, thanks, Pops. Uh, a couple more things. Are there any resources that come to mind for you that you would send people to if they want to learn more about the things that you find important, uh, whether it's a book that you've read recently or speakers that you admire these days? Um, well, uh, Sam Keen and his son wrote a book, uh, and I forget the exact title of it, but I think it's something like the... Um, Prodigal Father, is that the one? Correct. Prodigal Father and Wayward Son. Um, it's a book that I recommend for all fathers and all sons to read. The second thing is I would recommend uh, looking at the research done by uh, uh, Robert, Dr. Robert Macy, who, uh, if you can Google him, he's the individual that's uh, kind of spearheading the social and emotional wellness program in Sonoma County. Uh, and he's part of what is now called the Hannah Institute. Um, uh, I would recommend that as well. Um, so those are two uh, suggestions that I make. One's very specific and, uh, and how to react and interact with your child. And then uh, much more holistically, the, the program about addressing the social and emotional wellness of our youth today. Mm -hmm. um, the last thing I would say is any opportunity you have to get involved with not only raising the issue, but developing the skills and the professional knowledge to help the community or the uh, our youth, uh, there's a tremendous need for that. For the enlightened people to say, this is important, I want to be part of the solution, and get the training and the experience to come back and help these people. I can think of, if I were younger, it would be a calling for me. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for your time, Pops. Great to talk with you at this level. I love the opportunity. Thank you for uh, making me one of the first. All Thank right. You. I love you. Love you too. Okay. A huge thank you to my guest and my father, Gary Nelson. Don't try to find him on social media. He is nowhere to be found on the interwebs because he is old school. My father's 81 years old, and so you know I'm so blessed, so grateful to be able to have these kinds of discussions with him. I hope to have another one coming soon, a part two, where we go even deeper into our relationship. We get into some hairy stuff, so look forward to that coming out soon. And a challenge for you, if you enjoyed this, if you're enjoying them already, I challenge you to go have a conversation with your own father. I hope you're blessed to still have that person in your life. Sit down and ask some of these questions about what it means to be a good human being. What did it mean to him? What does it mean to you? I want to thank also my music man, Auli Chino. You can find him at aulichino.it. He is pretty much the Michael Franti of Italy. He comes from Palermo in Sicily. 
He is a straight up spiritual gangster. And I couldn't be more grateful for the jams that he has gifted me for this podcast. Please check him out and support his music. And if you like this podcast, rate and review it wherever you listen. Give me five stars. If you want to give me four, instead, give me some suggestions to make this better. If you want to give me three, give me a lot of suggestions. Hit me up at Chase Wildly or at Chase Wildly Podcast. Either one. Instagram preferred. I'm probably on Facebook too. Who knows? Doesn't matter, really. Enjoy listening to these. I hope it provides some value to you. To me, there's value in making them. There's value in having the discussions. And I'll leave you with that. Go out there and love somebody. Take care. Friend.